To make a donation, visit biblicallycorrectpodcast.org slash donate. And if you enjoyed this episode, please like, share, and subscribe. Thank you for your support. Which Bible version has the right translation? Welcome to the Biblically Correct Podcast. Shalom, y'all. This is the Biblically Correct Podcast, teaching biblical correctness in a biblically incorrect world. My name is Kevin Jeffrey. I'm a Jewish follower of the Messiah Yeshua, Jesus, and I love teaching the scriptures. According to the American Bible Society, there are about 900 English translations and paraphrases of the Bible. And today, we're going to discuss and rank all of them. You ready? Here we go. Number 900. I'm just kidding. That would actually be pretty impossible to do. I don't even know where you would get such a list, to be honest. But the reality remains that for a book, the Bible, with only one single God-intended meaning for everything it talks about, a lot of mere mortals, including yours truly, have tried their best to make it accessible and understandable in the languages and cultures they know. So today, let's talk about Bible translations in general what they are and how to differentiate between them, and then look at some of the more widely used ones to help you decide which one or which ones you should be using. Now, as I mentioned in a previous teaching, the Bible as we know it is based on a collection of ancient texts. The Hebrew Scriptures, written mostly in Hebrew and often called the Old Testament or the Tanakh in Hebrew Bibles, and the New Covenant Scriptures, written in Greek and often called the New Testament. The last of the original biblical writings were penned about 2,000 years ago. Nothing that we consider to be biblical has been written since then. So because most people don't read or speak ancient Hebrew, this necessitated the work of translation, which is the act of transmitting the meaning of the biblical words from Hebrew or Greek into other languages, such as English. The significant benefit of translation is that any person who can read can then read the Bible for themselves without having to rely on religious clergy to tell them what it says. This is one of the major accomplishments of the Christian Reformation in the 16th century, which saw the translation of the scriptures into the common language rather than being shrouded in Latin and shielded by the Catholic Church. For the first time, the Bible was able to be mass-produced and distributed among the people, thanks also to the invention of the printing press. The downside of Bible translation, however, is that there is now no longer a single authoritative version of the Bible, and this is made obvious by the titles of such translations themselves. The New King James Version, the New International Version, the Tree of Life Version— A translation or version of the Bible by its very nature means that it's not the same as the original. By undergoing the process of translation, it becomes a variation of the original, and each Bible translator translates in a slightly different way, some more than others. So Bible translation, while its goal was to get the Bible into the hands of ordinary people, also led to an explosion of translations, leaving us to decide for ourselves which ones are best. Now, a lot of us aren't very discriminating when it comes to choosing a Bible translation. We'll often pick up a version because we like the way it reads or because it's the one that the pastor or rabbi uses, making it easier to follow along during a sermon, or simply because someone told us it was good based on any number of criteria. All of these reasons are definitely worth considering when choosing a Bible, but the problem is not all Bible translations are created equal. 
There's a lot going on in the background in each version of the Bible that isn't always obvious to us as end users. So let's take a peek under the hood right now to see what it is that drives our Bible translations. Let's start with manuscripts. So the basic idea with what are called manuscripts is that these are the thousands and thousands of ancient handwritten copies of the Bible that have been preserved or found or discovered over time, anywhere from tiny fragments to entire books. And since, to our knowledge, no original biblical manuscripts have survived, we have to rely on these copies for an accurate depiction of what the Hebrew and Greek scriptures say. This means we need to have a high degree of trust in the accuracy of these copies, of these manuscripts, way before we even get to translation. And we can trust them, given the sheer number of manuscripts we have. Just compare the 25,000 early New Testament manuscripts to, say, those of Aristotle's Poetics, which was written in the 4th century BC, and of which the grand total of manuscripts we have is five the earliest of which was copied about 14 centuries after the original. So the abundance of biblical manuscripts we have exponentially increases our ability to recover what was originally written on the pages of Scripture. Taking those manuscripts then, people over the centuries have entered into the long and painstaking process of collecting and comparing them with one another and then, to the best of their reasoning and ability, compiled what they believe to be the most authentic and reliable copies, manuscripts that they believed to be as close to the original as possible. So it's the compilations of these manuscripts that are used for the creation of all Bible translations. And of course, there isn't just one official compilation. I mean, why make it easy, right? Now, as far as the Hebrew scriptures are concerned, there's pretty much only one version that's used for virtually every Bible translation. And that's what's called the Masoretic Text. This version of the Hebrew Bible was assembled and codified by Jewish scribes between about the 6th and 10th centuries. While there have been different versions of this text, the one that's considered to be the most authoritative was published in the early 16th century. So in virtually all English Bible translations that you pick up, the Hebrew Scriptures will be based on this one particular text. This, of course, is excluding Catholic Bibles, which contain additional books. I won't go into that right now. Now, this doesn't mean that the translators don't sneak in other sources from time to time, especially when the manuscript creates theological problems for them. But for the overwhelming majority of the text, the Hebrew upon which all our English translations are based is the same. Unfortunately, the same can't be said of the New Covenant Scriptures, and some people have very strong opinions about it. The variation in Greek manuscripts for New Covenant Scripture translations essentially falls into two camps, what are called the received text and the critical texts. What this basically means for modern English translations is it pits the King James Version against pretty much everything else. Let's break this down a bit because it's a little confusing. I'll try to keep it as simple as I can. The Greek text of both the New and Original King James Versions which was compiled by a fellow named Erasmus in the early 16th century, is called the Received Text, or in Latin, the Textus Receptus. Erasmus used the Greek manuscripts that were available to him at the time, which we now know dated from around the 12th century AD. 
Now, the underlying text for most other modern English translations are what are known as critical texts. And today, the one that is primarily used is the Nestle Allen Greek New Testament, named for the men who first compiled it. The first edition of this Greek text was compiled in 1898 and the most recent revised version in 2012. Compared to the received text, critical text creators now have access to manuscripts that date back as far as the second century, considerably closer to the original date of writing than what Erasmus had. So Erasmus and Nestle Allen and all the others in between that have sought to create a definitive Greek text for the New Covenant scriptures all basically did the same thing. Using various versions of what's called textual criticism, they examined the various manuscripts they had available to them at the time, like, say, all the different copies of John 1.1, and compared and contrasted them with one another. Then, based on what they found, were they all the same? Were there any differences? They made reasoned judgments as to which copy was closest to the original. Erasmus did it in the 16th century. Modern textual critics still do it today. The disagreement as to which manuscript compilation is better or more accurate looks more or less like this. Those who favor the King James Version on the basis of it being translated from the received text do so believing the King James to have been the translation that God divinely chose to spread the word of God around the world. To be sure, the King James Version, even today, is the second most top-selling English translation on the planet. On the other side... Those who favor translations that use a more modern critical text do so based on the belief that the use of older manuscripts not available at the time of the King James translation are more reliable since they were created at a time closer to when the original was written. The idea being that with less time between original and copy, fewer errors would have crept in. This, by the way, happens to be my position. Now, my purpose here isn't to discuss or refute the belief that only the King James Version is the legitimate God-ordained English translation, or that other translations have so-called missing verses or anything like that. We can have that debate another time. But what's important for us to understand is that despite the numerous variations, not just between the received text and the critical texts, but within the compiled texts themselves, there is far, far more agreement in substance between the different versions of the Greek New Testament, then there is disagreement. Their agreement far outweighs their differences. In fact, I held a relatively negative view of the received text before I started working on the Messianic Jewish Literal Translation of the New Covenant Scriptures, which Perfect Word published in 2018. The MGLT is a significantly revised version of the late 19th century literal translation by Robert Young, which I've loved from the moment I first saw it. But when I first got to work on revising and updating it, after noticing how it closely lined up with the King James when there were discrepancies with the modern translations, I realized that Young's was also based on the received text. So I went ahead and updated the text with the Nestle Allen critical text, but still preserved all the tiniest alternate renderings from the received text in footnotes throughout the book. So if you pick up an MJLT, you'll have both the critical and received text represented. Pretty cool, right? But in doing this, I found that while there were indeed a handful of places where the differences in the text had pretty significant theological ramifications, 
All in all, I found that the received text of the King James Version was essentially saying the same thing as the critical text, and therefore as other modern Bible translations. The essential message of the good news of Yeshua was intact. In fact, in some instances, the King James was closer to what the Greek actually said than some other translations, with the exception of Young's. So all of that is a long way of saying that before choosing a Bible translation, we need to be aware of the underlying Greek text that it uses. For example, you may find the King James Version preferable stylistically because you enjoy the Old English. But if you're concerned about the reliability of the underlying Greek upon which the English translation is built, then you may need to reconsider. Based on my research and understanding, the modern critical texts of the Greek New Testament are the most accurate and reliable we have. And even if there's considerable agreement with the received text, those few places of major disagreement are enough to dissuade me from using it. I want my New Testament to be as true to God's intended word as it can possibly be, all the way down to the jot and tittle. So that was a look at the differences among original language manuscripts. Now that we have our manuscripts, we're ready for translation. And here's where translators begin making choices about their translations. These days, for better or worse, translators have many different considerations when they're deciding how to translate. And it's much more than just whether or not a specific word best conveys the meaning of the text. For example, some translations are made with a specific target audience in mind, like general audiences versus believers more familiar with the Bible. They can also adjust their translations to target a particular reading level, like a Bible aimed at children, versus a translation that reads at a college reading level. So translators will make translation decisions based on the reasons or purposes or agendas they may have in making a new translation. Not always to make the translation more accurate, but to accommodate those people who the translators feel need a different style of translation. The problem with this approach is that the further we get away from the actual words of the original text, the less translating is going on and the more the translators are interpreting what the original authors said. They try to tell us what they think the original authors meant in a language the translators think we will understand. While some amount of interpretation is inevitable when trying to fit a Hebrew or Greek thought into an English whole, Interpretation is not the main job of a translator. The translator is merely supposed to bring the words or thoughts from a foreign language into equivalent words or thoughts into our own. In order to adjust the text for alleged understandability or accessibility, the more translators have to massage the text and put their own spin on the words of Scripture. Now, these different ways of translating fall along a spectrum which spans three basic approaches, and they are word-for-word, thought-for-thought, and paraphrase. In a word-for-word translation, the goal is to be as literal as possible, maintaining the original text on a word-for-word basis. The more literal the translation, the more accurate it is to the original language, but the more work it may take to read and understand. A thought-for-thought translation is a little more liberal, where the translator tries to convey the ideas of the text in phrase-sized or concept-sized chunks rather than sticking rigidly to each individual word. The result is, is less precise but more easy to read. It's supposedly to get the gist of the original text, 
but knowingly at the expense of a certain level of exactitude. A paraphrased version is like a thought-for-thought version, but relying more on the thoughts of the translator, where he feels free to interpret at will, adding or changing whatever he feels will help convey the meaning of the text he chooses for his audience. A paraphrased version is like a teacher giving a sermon and putting the scripture into his own words, but without the benefit of us first having heard the actual scriptures. If your only Bible is a paraphrased version, the scriptural concepts might be being conveyed, but you will have little to no idea what the original text actually says. So Bible translations fall along this spectrum, some more literal than others, some more paraphrasing than others, many of them blending different approaches depending on their translation goals or the needs of any given verse or passage. Let's take a look, for example, at Romans chapter 7, verse 14, and compare some different versions noting the impact of their translation decisions. So the ESV, the English Standard Version, is toward the word-for-word end of the scale, meaning that it will be more true to the original text. And in Romans 7, 14, it reads, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. So Paul is comparing the law, the Torah, to himself, remarking on their natural incompatibility. While the law, on the one hand, is spiritual, on the other hand, Paul is still of the flesh and sold under sin, as are we all. Now take a look at the NIV, the New International Version, which is further down on the thought-for-thought part of the spectrum. The NIV reads, We know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. So it's pretty obvious we're reading the same verse as we did in the ESV. They're very similar. But look at the major translation change the NIV makes. Instead of saying, but I am of the flesh, the NIV says, but I am unspiritual. So now it's communicating something completely different. The ESV rightly uses the word flesh, as that's the appropriate translation of the Greek. What is the flesh? It's our physical, natural body which is susceptible to the effects of this world, in addition to housing our desires, which lead us into temptation and sin. Our flesh hasn't gone away or changed just because we're now in Messiah. All that's changed is that we're now capable of denying the flesh what it wants. So what is the NIV's unspiritual thing supposed to be? In no way can the Greek word itself be legitimately translated that way. So that means that the NIV is trying to convey Paul's thoughts on the matter rather than just his words. But when the NIV juxtaposes spiritual with unspiritual, as opposed to spiritual versus flesh, it completely changes what Paul's talking about. Unspiritual, then, becomes something disconnected from our physical selves, our flesh, relegating sin only to a spiritual realm, rather than a physical one. That's a pretty significant theological deviation from what Paul is plainly saying. So this is an example of how thought-for-thought translation can betray the original text. For further comparison, let's also look at the CJB, the Complete Jewish Bible, which is now getting closer to the paraphrase end of the spectrum. The same verse in Romans reads, For we know that the Torah, the law, is of the Spirit. But as for me, I am bound to the old nature, sold to sin as a slave. Now, do you notice it's starting to get a little bit wordy? That's an indication that the translator is taking a few more liberties with the text. So here, instead of saying, 
I am of the flesh, the CJB says, I am bound to the old nature. Now, the old nature isn't a biblical term, but a theological one, and not a particularly helpful one at that. I think for some reason there can be an aversion to using the word flesh because it's not something we normally say outside of spiritual or scriptural context. It's not an immediately easily understood concept. And this leads to creative interpretations. But the problem is, this still isn't what Paul's saying. The old self or old man in scripture, that's the actual biblical term that the CJB may be alluding to, is not the same as the flesh. They're two different things. So the CJB is inaccurately indicating something that Paul, again, is not talking about. Moving on now to a full-on paraphrase version, the New Living Translation starts heading out into uncharted waters. The same verse, Romans chapter 7, verse 14 in the NLT reads, So the trouble is not with the law, for it is spiritual and good. The trouble is with me, for I am all too human a slave to sin. So it definitely still resembles the text. The heart is there, but the word is getting pretty garbled. The NLT has clearly added a lot of stuff. For example, the Greek here says nothing about the law being good, though this is obviously a reference to verse 12. And the colloquial, the trouble is that it says twice is obviously added to the text. Not to mention the translation completely changes the tone of the verse. And as for what is standing in place for the correct I am of the flesh, the NLT says, instead, I am all too human, which only obscures the word flesh without bringing anything helpful, much less scriptural, to our understanding of what Paul is saying. We lose the impact of our dreaded fleshliness in comparison with the Torah's spiritualness and are left with almost an excuse or a justification for our sin. I'm all too human. And finally, just for laughs, the Message Bible, which is a paraphrase on steroids, goes completely off the deep end with something that looks very little like the Word of God. Again, Romans seven fourteen in the Message Bible says, I can anticipate the response that is coming. I know that all God's commands are spiritual, but I'm not. Isn't this also your experience? Yes, I'm full of myself. After all, I've spent a long time in sin's prison. Okay, moving on. So to reiterate, today's Bible translations fall along a spectrum from paraphrase to thought for thought to word for word. Here's where today's best-selling Bibles fall along that spectrum. On the paraphrase end are the Message Bible and the New Living Translation. Then moving toward thought for thought is the NIRV, the easy reading edition of the New International Version. Then come middle-of-the-road thought-for-thought Bibles moving toward word-for-word, which are the CSB, the Christian Standard Bible, and the New International Version. These are also sometimes called dynamic equivalence versions. And finally, toward the word-for-word end of the spectrum, we find the New King James Version, the King James Version, the English Standard Version, ESV, and the New American Standard Bible, NAS. For comparison's sake, even though it's not really being published anymore, but is available in Bible programs, I'll also add the Young's literal translation all the way on the end of the word-for-word scale. For Messianic Jewish Bibles, the complete Jewish Bible, CJB, would fall probably right around the uh, NIV Easy Reading Bible. And the Tree of Life version, TLV, 
would fall between the NIV and word-for-word translations. The Messianic Jewish literal translation of the New Covenant Scriptures, MJLT, which is not a complete Bible yet, would fall just to the left of Young's literal. When I was editing it, I endeavored to make it more readable than Young's, but wouldn't allow myself to move too far away from it and sacrifice its literal nature. Using Young's as a framework, I went to great pains to make sure that the original text of the Greek was well represented and documented in some way in the MGLT. So now we come to the question, which version of the Bible has the right translation? Well, when we consider the source material, which manuscripts are used, as well as the translation methods that are employed and the goals of the translators, I believe that it's not a matter of determining which translation is right, but which one best preserves and transmits the Word of God. My bias should be obvious. I am every day, all day, willing to give up ease of reading for a translation that sticks as close to the original as possible. I want to know the Word of God as exactly as I can, and I don't want any of man's ideas getting into my head. That's why we published the MJLT, because I was tired of wondering whether or not what I was reading was truly accurate to the text. But that said, there's no such thing as a perfect Bible translation. Every translation has its quirks and flaws because it was translated by a quirky, flawed human being. And sometimes translators don't make the best decisions for their translations. Some translators even have agendas they want to promote or specific doctrines they're trying to defend. Some translations that are off the beaten path are simply a complete abomination to God's word. So be careful. In my opinion, once we start heading down the readability road, away from literal word-for-word translation, we're headed for trouble, but may still be relatively safe up to a point. I would say that if you're choosing just one Bible version, choose one toward the word-for-word side of the spectrum, but no further left than the NIV, although even that's getting iffy. And because of the manuscript issue, I also would personally exclude the King James versions. They translate the received text just fine, such as it is, but that's not the Greek text I want to rely upon. The best thing you can do, however, especially if you're using any type of Bible software or app, is to read and compare multiple versions. You're bound to settle on a favorite version for daily reading or memorization, but especially when it comes to matters of doctrine and practice, consult different translations that are toward the word-for-word side of the scale to make sure you're getting the most accurate translation you can. What you want to avoid is letting just one single translation shape your theology. Comparing other translations is a means of checks and balances, both for the translation you favor and for your own understanding. Reading and knowing and consuming the Word of God isn't supposed to be a chore, but a joy. But that doesn't mean we can trade something that requires a little extra thought or work for a version that seems easier to understand or more pleasant to read. Proverbs chapter 10, verse 19 says, In the abundance of words, violation does not end, but one who is restraining his lips is wise. The work of translating the Bible is difficult and treacherous enough. But embellishing God's word in an attempt to bring understanding only introduces new and unforeseen dangers all its own. Our spiritual forefathers did us an invaluable service by getting the book into our hands so that each one of us could read the word unfiltered for ourselves. We must not squander that gift 
by consuming God's word that is mingled or shrouded with the words of men, leaving us with a version of scripture that is really no version at all. Don't settle for a Bible translation that's less than what God's word deserves. Use a version that draws straight from the source and seeks not to interpret, but to preserve the word. Thanks for joining me for this episode of the Biblically Correct Podcast. If you like this episode and want to see us make more, then we need your help. Visit our website at biblicallycorrectpodcast.org to support the work of Perfect Word Ministries and MJMI with your much-needed donations. And of course, don't forget to like, share, comment, subscribe, and ring the bell to receive notifications whenever a new episode is posted. If you have any questions about this teaching, or if there are any other topics you'd like to see me cover, leave me a comment, or shoot me an email at kevin at perfectword.org. That's kevin at perfectword.org. Until next time, remember that every scripture is God-breathed and profitable for teaching, for refuting, for setting aright, and for instruction that is in righteousness, so that the man of God may be fully equipped, having been completed for every good act. Shalom.